Sure. I want to be declared by all as the greatest of all time. That's right. Because the stage is set. I'm 32 years old. My legs are gold. This man is strong. You're talking <laughs> about how great he was. And now we're going to see. Races are against him. The planets are against him. And already, he right. lost the first five rounds. Right. Is that right? That's are we right. going to dance? Float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Huh? Rumble, young man, rumble. I want George Fulman's for men and this man over here, Henry Clark, the number six contender, to go back and tell the man to be ready for a dance. Dance! Are we gonna dance? Are we gonna dance? All night long. Yeah, let the man we say something. Half of the the let the man talk. Joe's gonna come out smoking, and I ain't gonna be joking. I'll be pecking and a poking, pouring water on his smoking. Then this might shock and amaze you, but I will destroy Joe Frazier. Let me see you close your mouth and just keep it closed. Well, you know that's impossible. No, 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 keep it closed. You know that's impossible. I'm the greatest. And I'm knocking out all bones. And if you get too small, I'll knock you out. I'm experienced now, professional. Jaw's been broke, been lost, knocked down a couple times. Bad. Been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Bad, dude. Bad. Fast. 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 Last night I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are gonna bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm gonna show you how great I am. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Cassius Marcellus Clay. He's young. He's handsome. They know it. He's a poet, a prophet. And many people believe he'll be the next heavyweight champion of the world. Cassius, can I ask you how you're feeling now at this point in your I'm finish? feeling great. I'm ready to go to war right now. Well, when you say you're ready to go to war right if now... I see that bear on the street, I beat him before the fight. You'd actually take him on before the fight? Beat him like I'm his daddy. I saw Sonny listen a few days ago, Cassius. Ain't he ugly? <laughs> he's, he's too ugly to be the world champ. The world champ should be pretty like me. Well, he told me to bet my life that you wouldn't go three rounds. Well, if you want to lose your money, then bet on Sunday. Oh, uh, may I ask you Because that? I'll never lose a fight. It's impossible. Tell him. It's impossible. Never lost a fight in your life. That's any of my fans when the last time they lost. I'm too fast. Champion from I'm the, the crib. I'm the king. Born to town. Born to from the crib. Ah! I'm not only a fighter. I'm a poet. I'm a prophet. I'm the resurrector. I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. What percentage of the fans who are coming to see you fight Sonny Liston, what percentage of the fans do you feel will be coming to see him, and what percentage do you feel will be coming to see you? Well, 100% will be coming to see me, but 99% will be coming to see me get beat. Do you really feel that Because they think I talk too much. But well, I got these. And they represent your thinking? These represent dynamite. Clay <laughs> comes out to me, listen. And Liston starts to retreat. If Liston goes back in his father, he'll end up in the ringside seat. Clay swings with his left. Clay swings with his right. Look at young Cassius carry the fight. Liston keeps backing, but there's not enough room. It's a matter of time. And Clay lost the moon. 
Now let them disappear from view. The crowd is getting frantic. But our radar stations have picked him up. He is somewhere over the Atlantic. Listen to see a rising, and the ref wears a frown. For he can't start counting till Sonny comes down. Who would have thought when they came to the fight that they had witnessed the launching of a human satellite? Yes, the crowd did not dream when they put down their money that they would see a total eclipse of the sunny. Hey, I'm the king of the world. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it, hold it. You're not that pretty. I'm a bad man. Wait, wait. Joining me on Film Sociology is a man who peeked behind the curtain, and it's a documentary called Room Full of Spoons. Of course, as you know, Film Sociology is your home for uh, Tommy Wiseau information. But Rick Harper is here. T- Rick, how you doing, my friend? Hey, I'm really good. Thanks a lot for having me, Matt. Um, I would say, tell us about your first experience of watching the film The Room. Uh, the first time I watched The Room, I actually uh, watched it at home. I was uh, with my wife, and I sat her down and said, all right, we're going to watch the worst movie ever made. So we pressed play, and I guess my initial thoughts were, this really can't be that bad, because the opening montage of San Francisco is so well shot and edited, and then you have the beautiful score by Mladen Lechevik, and everything seemed fine. I'm like, how bad can this thing really be? And then Tommy walks through the door, Hi, babe. character Johnny, and says, hi, babe, yeah. and everything changed from that moment on. <laughs> I believe there's a quote in your film that, that I, I can't remember who said it, but the uh, yeah the quote accidental good instincts came in the play at times. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a quote. I, I I was quoting Sandy Shaclair actually when I said that. I thought it was a, a really interesting way of of um, you know uh, qualifying Tommy's success. I was a couple weeks ago. I was watching uh, the film version of Valley of the Dolls, and they were talking about the definition of camp of something that's played for seri- played seriously, but it winds up becoming unintentionally funny. And uh, the the room fits that, and then some. It sure does. Yeah, I would say. Um, so, how many times did you watch? I'm gonna say, when was it when you finally got to see it with an audience? Uh, it was just the next, like probably a few weeks after I saw it on uh, on DVD. I knew that uh, you know I, I did a little research on it, and I knew that uh, people were throwing spoons, and there was call out lines at the theater, and it was like a big party. So it plays at uh, my local theater here, my local art house theater called the Mayfair. So only a couple weeks later, I went to see it, and uh, it was like what an experience! It was so much different. Like of course, it's fun to watch it at home. Watching it in theaters is just a completely different experience. It's it's not even like a movie. It's more like an event. Every time you go see it, it's different. You know, people uh, shout things at the screen. They throw spoons. They dress up like characters. It's just uh, just a huge party. I say, did your wife make it through the whole film? She did. She did. She's not uh, quite as big a geek as I am, but uh, yeah, she actually sat through it with me. Uh, she even came to the Mayfair with me a couple of times, and you know, because of my, I guess you could call call it an obsession with the movie she sort of got into the whole cult phenomenon of it as well you're a lucky man mine mine lasted 30 minutes <laughs> and and she got up and left and my daughter my daughter watched it but she had to cover her eyes during the four love scenes which takes up about a third of the film yeah that's uh yeah it's not exactly a uh, a pg movie but uh <laughs> you know what i don't blame your wife it's uh it's for a special type of person. Yeah. The room isn't necessarily for everyone. No, she pats she pats me on the head regularly about that. So <laughs> I was supposed to say, because I remember, I think it was the Onions AV Club. They talked about the day 
the day Midnight Movies died was when uh, Rocky Horror was available on home video. The fact that you could watch anything at any, at any time. And I think The Room, I think they said The Room single-handedly helped bring back the Midnight Movies. Because since then, there have been films like uh, Miami Connection and Troll 2 that, and Roar, where, where you have that midnight communal experience. And, and uh, you know, I think, the, I think single-handedly, The Room has been that champion. Yeah, I would totally agree with you because uh I mean, I'm um you know, I was a little bit young when Rocky Horror came out and stuff like that, so I never really got to experience that, but I would hear my uncles and my dad talk about Rocky Horror and going people dressing up and it's not something that uh, it was always something that I was kind of fascinated with but never got to experience until The Room came out. And it was this whole new generation of people going to midnight movies and dressing up and the call-out lines and and really having a lot of fun with it. And then, of course, movies like, uh, you know, Samurai Cop and Birdemic and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, started uh, resurfacing, and, and it just sort of revived that whole cult experience. So how long did it take before you started to uh, started to do uh, pre- preparation to make the documentary? About a year from the first time that, I'd, uh, that I saw it. You know, I was going to see it every single month uh, at the Mayfair, and probably after about a year, the owner of the, the Mayfair, you know, he always does a little introduction, and uh, he said, you know, I'm thinking of bringing Tommy uh, Wiseau to Ottawa. He's doing a tour. What do you guys think of that? So right after that, I went to see him, and I said, hey, I said, uh, you know, I really want to sponsor the event. At the time, I just really wanted to become a filmmaker, and the owner of the Mayfair, he's a filmmaker himself, so I wanted to sort of get into his circle, and then I figured if I sponsor this event, I get to meet up, I, I get to meet with him, and I get to meet Tommy Wiseau. So it was just really good math to me. So uh, we did that, and I got to meet Tommy, and immediately uh, I knew I had to do something with him. You know, I figured this is my opportunity to sort of hang out with somebody who I really admire and I think is really cool and pursue my dream of, of becoming a filmmaker. So I pitched the idea of doing a documentary. And uh, he was receptive right away? Initially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He uh, thought it was a great idea. He's like, yeah, we can do it under Wizzle Films, and uh, I have a red cam, and uh, why don't you guys come next month, uh, have a big event at the Ziegfeld in uh, New York City. And you'll have a groovy time. And you have groovy time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, I was really excited. I'm like, oh, wow, like my, my dream of becoming a filmmaker is coming true. And, uh, you know, Tommy invited me to New York, so, you know, I assembled a crew. And, um, and you know, hired a few assistants and went to New York and, and started shooting the documentary then. Well, when I talked with Tommy about this, which which you can hear a little later on in the show, was, I mean, from a filmmaking standpoint, it's hard to make a movie. It is hard. I mean, there there have been thousands of movies that have been attempted and not finished. So the fact that he was able to have a complete product, that's something to be said. That's something, that's, that's something that not everybody can do. And, uh, you know, so at the very least, there is that achievement. It's just nobody nobody quite expected what we were getting with, with his finished film. Right. Um, so, I would say, how many times do you think you saw it before you got to meet Tommy? You said you saw it, we were seeing it almost every week? Uh, almost every month. So almost I would say at least okay. a dozen times. Okay. And, I mean, once you really get into it, you're not just watching it in theaters. You're watching clips on YouTube and the memes. So I was really, I, I was living the room for about a year until uh until i actually got to meet him you know mm-hmm. and yeah i mean it's and, and a lot of people think that you know meeting tommy is funny and his movie's funny and it's it's ridiculous and there's bad things but absolutely there is something to uh admire there because you know he was a first-time filmmaker uh clearly didn't know what he was doing but no no real first-time filmmakers do 
you know mm -hmm. and uh, just like you said a lot of people don't even finish their films or they just talk about it or you know they might have a script that they started or there's all types of obstacles of course money being one and uh, he was able to fight through all that and the result wasn't necessarily what he intended it to be but it is it's definitely admirable that he was able to finish it and and uh, and, and turn it into such a success now, I don't want to give away too much with your documentary, but was it your intent from the get-go to try to, I use the term, peek behind the curtain when it comes to Tommy Wiseau as a person? Not necessarily, no. Now, of course, there's a lot happened after that trip to New York. Uh, things sort of went awry with Tommy. Uh, he wanted to take the documentary in a different direction. Now, you know, while I respect that, and in retrospect, it, it makes sense to me, but he just wanted to make basically an hour and a half long promotion for the room right which essentially is what a documentary is you know like you are promoting the movie you're telling people that they're, that this movie exists and why it's so special and why it's so you know adored but uh as soon as i started interviewing certain people that he didn't want me to talk to uh and stuff like that he backed away and just basically said that he didn't want to take part in it anymore it was a bit discouraging initially but then uh you know like i said in, in retrospect it's a good thing because when you're it, it would create a real bias if you have you know the, if the person you're documenting is a producer on the project mm -hmm. so once tommy bowed out of the project i decided to take it in a bit of a different direction uh we interviewed all of the cast most of the crew a lot of people who just worked on the room peripherally or have other projects that are related to it and then also uh then we decided to you know what, there's a lot of mystery around who Tommy is, so we started doing a little bit of research to find out, to answer some of the questions that fans have been debating over for the past, uh, you know, 13 years now. Who were the people he didn't want you to talk to? Um, early on, I remember a conversation. It was the day before I was leaving to, uh, to my first time going to L.A., and uh, he told me, he said, I'm not against your project, but he said, don't interview Sandy Chaclair or the blonde guy with the glasses. <laughs> so I later found out that the blonde guy with the glasses was Michael Rousselet, who's a great guy, and I don't really know why he didn't want me to interview him. Uh, Michael Rousselet is the person who more or less discovered the room. He was one of the original fans. He was the one who uh. brought a lot of people to come see it and made it what it is today. You know, but uh, And then Sandy Chaclair is someone who he had a very public feud with. You know, Sandy claims that he was the real director of the room and uh, and not Tommy. And uh, we touch on that in the documentary as well. Yep. Um, and then, of course, you know, I, I did interview or I reached out to a lot of uh, Tommy's family members. And uh, he didn't like that too much either. But, you know, he was no longer at that point involved in the movie and didn't really have a whole lot of say in the direction I was taking it in. So... I think that I dealt with that in a very mature and respectful way, but there are certain things in the movie that uh, that he didn't want me to to reveal, and certain people he didn't want me to talk to, and stuff like that. Here, yeah, the interviews with Sandy reminded me of William Goldman's claiming that he wrote Goodwill Hunting, and, and it's like there's there's now a parallel between the room and Goodwill Hunting. That's an interesting parallel because there's a, certainly a difference in quality between the two, but. Um, but yeah, no, Sandy's he's, he's very passionate. I mean, if you you can look up Sandy Chaclair's IMDb, he's a very very accomplished filmmaker. So it's interesting in itself that somebody who's so accomplished and has worked with literally everyone in Hollywood would want to take credit for something that's considered to be the worst movie ever made. So in itself, that that makes made for a really interesting interview. 
but uh, but there you have it. You know, he he claims that he directed it, and uh, you know that he set up every shot, told the actors what to do, and that Tommy did nothing on set except uh, act, really. And, and he yelled things like, "Don't touch the dialogue. It's genius." Yeah, and stuff like that too. He's when he was trying to change some of the words to to uh, you know to uh, translate a little bit better on onto uh, on screen. You know that he would say, "Oh, don't touch the dialogue. It's it's genius. It's meant to be this way," and stuff like that. So he makes fun of the movie a lot, and and basically claims that while making it, he just thought, you know, no one's ever going to see this, so I'm just going to have fun, and that he sabotaged the movie. How much of that is true is really up for the viewer to decide. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you obviously talked to a lot of the cast and the crew, and and I think of the interviews with uh, with Juliet, who is an extremely patient human being, uh, and I know she talked about how it was it was you know it was a job at first, kind of horrifying afterwards, seeing the finished result, and then enough time has passed that she was able to embrace it. Was that the general consensus with most of the cast and crew? I think so. You know, everyone was really open about participating in this. I didn't really have to convince anyone to take part of it, to take part in it, sorry. Um, no one was, you know, really hiding from their quote-unquote fame that they got from being in the room. You know, everyone just sort of really has fun with it. I think that um, while we make fun of the movie, we as in the fans, while we make fun of the movie, there's something really genuine about it. And I think that the, a lot of the actors and the people who took part in the movie know that we genuinely like them. Like they, you know, we, we go see them, but it's not, we, we don't make fun of them as a person or as an actor. We're just making fun of this silly project that they were in, you know, 12, 13 years ago. So, you know, while for Juliet especially, because, you know, she spends half the movie naked, and she's one of the actresses who really, you know, took it seriously uh, while making it. So she really thought she was making a good movie and that this was going to be her, this was really going to kick off her career as an actress and stuff like that. So, of course, initially she was really hurt. And, and she says, you know, during one of the interviews how she wanted to dig a hole 10 feet deep and just hide until this whole thing blew over. But I think, uh, you know, I, I think once she realized that this isn't going away, she, she might as well just embrace it and just accept you know, the, the fame that she did get and and uh, whatever comes with it. And I think she realizes now that the fans really do love her. And that was an important goal of mine early on because at some of the screenings, people yell really mean things about her. Not so much anymore, but earlier on, people would, you know, say very shaming things about the way that she looked and, you know, stuff like that. So it was a, a important goal of mine early on to really humanize her and show the fans, like, look, this is who Juliette Danielle really is. And uh, and I feel I was successful in doing that. She's an absolute sweetheart, and she came across that way in the movie. Mm, yeah, again, once again, a really, really good sport. Especially, you know, her telling the story of watching it for the first time and realizing what what stayed on film. I mean, that's 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 extremely harsh. So. Um, a couple other connections we were talking about parallels of other films and and I remember in in some of the ad campaigns that there was somebody had had name dropped Tennessee Williams and the fact that he actually that Tommy actually told the composer that he was trying to make a streetcar named Desire or at least his version of it right right as far as as far as making a a and I I, I use the term melodrama I guess in the traditional sense not in the in the critical sense and then another one I know he he brought up was was trying to make uh his own version of a rebel without a cause that's I think where the famous catchphrase is, yeah, is based yeah, upon yeah. 
Uh, but he, but he, but he really wanted to make a, a high drama for, of a feel from the 1950s. Yeah, that's the, that's the impression that that uh, at least he gave. You know, Mladen Milicevic, the the composer, and uh, and a lot of um, how he would, I guess, direct the actors. You know, tell them like you need to to have passion and it has to be dramatic. And you know, Greg Sestero was even quoted as saying that. Uh, you know that he said that he was going to make a movie so dramatic that people weren't going to sleep for two weeks after seeing it, and um, and you know and, and stuff like that. And while you can see the passion in some of his acting, I mean, some of the scenes where he, he, you can tell he's trying to be really emotional, and that this is uh, you know more than likely a very personal story to him, it just doesn't come across that way because um, you know the, I mean I guess the quality of his acting and a lot of the directing and. The story itself is is kind of flawed, and there's just so many things wrong with it that it's really it's hard to take seriously. Had it starred an entirely different cast, had it been directed by a different person, maybe he could have got those emotions across. Um, I think that's a reason that we love why we love it so much because we can see the effort on camera. Like we know there's something real there, but it just it, he just doesn't succeed in telling that story uh, no as dramatically as he wanted to. Can can you pinpoint when Tommy publicly decided to now what is now has become his mantra of uh, people people take the film for what it is? Do we know when that shift happened? Um, I think it was immediately after the premiere. Now the earliest footage of Tommy saying that before a crowd that I have is from 2004 at the one year anniversary from the release of The Room, where it was already popular amongst fans like Michael Rousselet and his friends and stuff like that. So he would rent small theaters and, uh, and, and sell tickets and you know, give away T-shirts and stuff like that. And, uh, and there's a small clip in the documentary where he says, you know, he says, keep in mind everything in this documentary was done on purpose. Everything was intentional. And then the crowd sort of chuckles a little bit because even back then they knew that it's impossible that this would all, was all on purpose. Now, according to, you know, the interviews that I have, um, I think it was Scott Holmes that said that um, right after the premiere, so right after like the you know the the, the first day that it ever screened, um, you know when people were laughing and stuff like that, uh, he went to to Greg and said you know why are people laughing at my movie and stuff like that and then Greg told him oh it's because your comedic timing is really good, and that possibly if if you ask me I think that, that probably sort of a light bulb came above his head, right? And then he just figured, like, okay, let me just market it this way since people, they laughed, and they're obviously not going to take it seriously. So instead of just getting discouraged and, and burying this project, let me just remarket it and, uh, and and see if people respond and, and use successful in doing so. And he's now, he and Greg are getting paid for each appearance on college campuses and theater houses ever since. All over the world, yeah. They've uh, they, they've been all over the world together. They tour in, in so many different cities, and it's uh, it's wild. Like I I've traveled to uh, like all over just uh, while filming uh, Room Full of Spoons, and uh, and it's it's incredible. Everybody knows Tommy. It's it's just really wild. Um, I guess I'm going through my notes, and I ha- I guess I have to ask, where is your respect, Rick? <laughs> Poor Tommy. He really he doesn't like me right now. While I still do have a tremendous amount of respect for him, we're not seeing eye to eye as far as the documentary is concerned. Um, 
you know, I, I think like we're in talks right now, and I think we're going to come to sort of an amicable resolution soon. And uh, you know, but he's went online and done, done no made statements about uh, him not supporting the documentary and shame on you videos and stuff like that. He has this idea that you know that this movie is, um, is is just completely disrespectful towards him and is bullying him and and all these things these terms that he uses which was of course never my intention I mean I think I'm a pretty respectful guy um, I can appreciate that if a documentary is being made about someone that that person isn't going to agree with everything that's said but a lot of that is, is out of my control uh, you know a lot of it is people's opinions and um and and the rest is uh you know and the research that i've done is is all factual so you know i don't know what his specific concerns are but um you know i i think we're going to come to a uh, you know, an amicable resolution uh, very soon but has there been have you been contacted by any form of lawyers at all i i'm sorry matt i don't really think i could talk about that it was worth but, a shot. I mean, you can take that answer for what it's worth. Fair, you know? no, fair enough. I had, to, yeah. I had to ask. So sorry, man. No, no, no. It's okay. Um, I was going to say, you. I think one of the one of the scenes that you uh, in the film is, I believe, the largest crowd you saw this with an audience was in Copenhagen. Yes. Now I wasn't there to witness oh. that. I did go to Copenhagen, and we did, uh, you know, a screening of the room, and I did go back to screen room full of spoons. But uh, it was um, the promoter, the Scandinavian promoter, uh, Elias uh, Elias Elliot. Um, yeah, he was telling a story about how they uh, screened it in Roskilde, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. And um, they had to turn away 2,000 people. They sold 850 seats, and they had to turn away 2,000 people, and it was just uh, it was just like the biggest screening of the room in, in Europe ever. Wow. And who created the video game? Uh, that's a gentleman named Tom Falp. He's the CEO of Newgrounds. And uh, they program a lot of video games for uh, for the web and for Xbox and, and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, he's he's a really cool guy. He's um, actually in Philadelphia. And uh, so we drove down there and interviewed him. Really, really nice guy. He said it took them, I believe, six months to make the game. And if you, uh, you know, play, playing the game is basically like watching a movie. It's every line, but then, of course, there's all this, this other fun, creative stuff that's in it. And it's uh, it's a real blast. Are the love scenes in the video game? I believe they are. I don't know how graphic they are, oh, but wow. uh, but yes, I, I believe they are. I think everything that's in the room and more is in the game. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, folks. Have it at it. It's your will. Um, so I guess, how has it been promoting the film? How many festivals have you been to so far? Uh, we submitted to a whole lot of festivals. Of course, it's uh, it's, it's still new. We premiered in Spain at the Cutracon Festival in um, January, and that went really well. It was really, really well received. And then... Um, we have uh, a couple other festivals that are coming up that I'm not sure I can announce just yet, but okay. they will be announced uh, on our website, uh, roomfullofspoons.com, very soon. And we submitted to a lot, um, a lot of others. We did the premiere in my hometown uh, here in Ottawa, and uh, you know it was an almost sold-out event, and it was uh, again a great success. And we, um, you know, I did a little bit of touring while I was in Europe after uh, after the uh, Spanish uh, premiere. Went to Copenhagen, and we went to um, to the UK and just did uh, just a few test screenings just to see how audience were responding to it and to see if there were some edits that we can make. And the, the response has been unanimous. Like people are really, really enjoying it, uh, which is, is it's validating for me because I really made this for the fans. You know, being a big fan of uh, of the room and and uh, and you know, and it has such a 
an important cult following that I wanted to make something that was worthy of its fan base, and uh, and so far people are really digging in. Has it been allowed to have be on a double bill with the room? Not yet, and that's something that I'm working on with Tommy right now, because I feel that it could be, uh, you know, that could be really successful. I think people are going to want to watch Room Full of Spoons more than once. It's, um, you know, I've been told it's hilarious, which is fun for a documentary, because a lot of times documentaries is just you know, an overload of information, which is fun in itself, but some of the uh, the stories that people tell and stuff, people really crack up, especially in theaters. And, uh, and uh, you know, so I think that people could re- would really have fun with it, and I think it would play great with the room. So uh, it's, it's my hope that that's going to uh, eventually work out, that we can uh, double bill it with the room. Well, I think, I think Room Full of Spoons is the hearts of darkness of, of the room itself. So, uh, you know, you, you have a good company as far as the making behind. Um Thanks. You're welcome. Have you? Do you have another project lined up for once this uh, once this dies down, or are you just still in the in the world of uh, promoting the film? We are promoting the film right now, and we have uh, you know some tours coming up. So I'm going back to uh, to Europe in June, and then um, you know we're going to Australia in July and, and stuff like that. And of course, we're going to be touring the U.S. Uh, in May and June probably. But uh, we do. We are flirting with some ideas right now. Whether that's going to be another documentary or like a, a scripted film, we're not 100% sure on just yet. But uh, nothing worthy of announcing. But we do. We are, you know, sort of toying with some ideas right now. And uh, what what was your take on the book? And I know they're trying to make a film out of uh, the Disaster Artist. Uh, the book was fantastic. The book was is. It's it's really it's, it's the room bible. Like I was, um, I didn't really know what to expect because a lot of the stories I knew already and and stuff like that. But hearing it from Greg's perspective and and if you listen to the audio book, hearing Greg's impression of Tommy is just is absolutely fantastic. So I uh, I think the book is is genius. You know, as a fan of the room, I almost get a little emotional when I read it. You know, but. Um, and the James Franco project, I mean, I'm really hoping that it's going to be, um, th- that it's going to translate well onto film. I mean, the audiobook itself is, I think, 11 or 12 hours. So to try to condense all those stories and, and all those years into an hour and a half uh, film, or however long it's going to be, I, uh, I, I really hope that it, um, I, I hope it's going to be good. I really do. And I think James Franco's the right guy to play Tommy. I think he's going to do a fantastic job. He's a great actor. And, um, and then, yeah, I guess we'll see. I'm excited for it, though. Well, fans of the room, just I think once it, it, it's a very addictive film. Once you've experienced it, you want others to experience it. You want to know as much as you can about it. And uh, and I would say, Rick, congratulations on Roomful of Spoons as far as providing that for fans of the room. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate that. Joining me on Film Sociology is a writer that makes me proud to be a writer who grew up in Michigan, Elmore Leonard. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you. Just writing a, a book. What? Yeah. What are you? What are you working on right now? Well, I'm writing a book based, sort of based. Well, it's a Raylan book. Raylan, who's in Justified. Mm-hmm. I've already written two books that he stars in. So I thought, what the heck? Well, uh, well, Justified is running. I might as well write another one, <laughs> and uh, maybe they can use some of it, which which they are going to do a little bit here and there. But it's a but it's it's a it's a novel. It's not really based on anything that they're doing on the show. Have you enjoyed the show so far? Uh, I think it's great. I, it's so amazing that it, it seems so uh, lifelike. It's so realistic the way they talk. They, uh, I can't believe it. 
Well, the source doesn't fall too far from the tree, sir. Well, the the they do they did wear those little bracelets that said, "Well, what would Elmore do?" <laughs> you know, that was nice. That was, right. That was kind of. <laughs> Now, now, when you're creating characters, do you know ones, it, whether you're writing or when you finish, that you know you're going to use again in, in future books? No, no, never. But uh, at least I don't think about it. Okay. But, uh, but I'll see, for example, I'll see <clears throat> a photograph in the newspaper, a couple of uh, marshals standing in front of the federal courthouse in Miami. And the woman has a shotgun on her well, the stock is on her uh, hip, and she's holding it up at an, at an ankle, and she's good-looking. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, i got to use her. <laughs> no question about it. Or, or when I met a, this, the guy named Raylan, I was in, uh, where was I, in Texas? Uh, Amarillo, I think. And I was giving a talk at a luncheon, a, a, a book company that, uh, well, they... They don't. They're not a publishing company, but they provide the books to uh, bookstores and so on. And uh, and and I was introduced to the this fellow who was going to introduce me, and he said, "Hi, I'm Raylan." I said, "Raylan, God, I got to use your name if you if it's okay." I said, "That's perfect," <laughs> and I've used it twice. Now, has have people come out of the woodworks claiming that they were the inspiration for some of your characters in the past? Um, I haven't heard it. No. Okay. <laughs> the the current crisis going on in Detroit, whether it's the government or that's money or the city declining, has that been inspiration for future work? No. Uh-uh. No, but I use Detroit because I know it. I've been here since the fourth grade. There's there's a lot of activity, but it's a but it's a big, robust, rowdy town, you know. Mm-hmm. And I and uh, I've always enjoyed it here. I I don't. Uh, it's it's fallen on bad times. There's no question about that. There, uh, the people who know how to make cars, they're still around, but they've moved out to suburbs because there there are about nine hundred thousand people living in Detroit. And uh, but all the suburbs are bustling, and uh, that's where they live. But I just heard today that it's going to get be tougher for uh, auto workers who don't have uh, necessary skills. That it's going to be different now uh, in man in uh, in the area of manufacturing. Going to have to learn a new way of doing things. So I don't know. I suppose they will. You know what happened to all the blacksmiths? I'm sure they got a job uh, eventually. <laughs> if if you don't mind me asking, what part of town do you live on? I live out uh, in Bloomfield Village, which is of uh, let's see, sixteen miles north of Detroit. Yes. Well, the the line, the Detroit line, is at eight mile, and we're at uh, we live just north of uh, fifteen near sixteen mile road. Well, well, going back a little bit, when what were some of the movies you watched growing up, and and did they have any inspiration to you when it became uh, when you wanted to be a writer? Yes, one in particular, um, All Quiet on the Western Front, and it was released in '31. I saw it; it kept coming back. Not, I mean, this was before television, but but I saw it uh, at least twice in movie theaters. And uh, I was inspired in the fifth grade to write a play. That was 1935. And I wrote a, a World War I play 
where the Germans were on one side of the classroom and the Americans were on the other, and, and one of the Americans crawls under the desk, which is no man's land, <laughs> and gets caught and gets shot, and somebody has to go out and save him. And I think it was the coward of the outfit who goes out and saves him. I'm not sure now. I wish I had that script. Uh, it'd be valuable. <laughs> but it, but uh, we put it on one one performance in the classroom, and uh, that was it. So uh, the, the, our our teacher, the sister who who was our homeroom, well, we were always in the same room, mm -hmm. and the mother superior of the school came and watched it, and that was it. That was that was the first thing I'd ever written, did, did, and did, I didn't write really anything else until uh, college, and then right after I got out of college, I started writing westerns because I I saw a, a wonderful market for them with especially pulp magazines and and also Saturday Evening Post and Collier's the the bigger pay magazines were always running westerns. I finally did sell one to uh, the Post. But I sold, while I was working at an ad agency, I sold at least uh, 30 uh, short stories, and most of those were to the pulp magazines, Dime Western and Ten Story Western, like that. They paid uh, two cents a word. 310 to Yuma, I got $90 for, but it was made into two movies. Correct. I still didn't make any money off them. <laughs> you mentioned uh, All's Quiet on a Western Front. Did that did the film inspire you to read the book, and were there other examples of that, that you yeah. saw a movie and you wanted to read it? Well, it it was, uh, I think in 35, it was, it was in the Detroit Times, the whole, I think the whole book, mm -hmm. probably over several issues, you know. Right. And I remember on the, lying on the floor reading it in, the, in our living room, and thinking, God, this would be a good play. And I, I don't know why I thought of play. You know, it's probably the only time in my life I ever thought in that way about a, a play, because I certainly haven't thought about it lately. You never you never wrote any more plays after that? No. Mm -mm. Did you ever see the film uh, Rushmore? That sounds familiar. Wes Anderson? Oh, Yeah. There's, I'm, I'm not sure if I did though. Well, there's a scene where it's set in a in a private high school, and what the lead character does uh, stage versions of movies, and one of the movies he stages is out of sight. Really? Yeah, he does the trunk. You see the trunk scene. Oh. <laughs> hmm. You can add that to your rental list. You know, people, uh, directors, who were thinking about doing that one, that they said, "God, that's a great scene." In the dark, and mm -hmm. one of them, the the one who finally did it, uh, summer summer Soderbergh, huh? Steven Soderbergh. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he said, "I'm going to do it. I want to do that scene, screen black." I said, "Why? You, I think you'll lose a lot of uh, of your audience." Well, he didn't do it that way, but there were so many different ways of doing it that uh, everybody liked that scene. Well, going back to uh, to movies you watched younger, was there was there ever a film that you read the book and then you saw the movie and you thought, what what in God's name did they do? Because it seemed like that happened to your to quite a bit of your work in the future. Yeah, it has. <laughs> um, no, I don't re I don't recall looking at them that way. Okay. No, but I I wanted to write movies immediately because I thought because I wanted to make money. That was my whole idea. Getting into writing and, and developing a particular style, 
that uh, I liked. Uh, and selling to the movies was had to be. And I did. I saw in 1953. I saw my first one, which was uh, 310 to Yuma. What happened? They called you and they offered, and that was it. My agent. I had an agent, and uh, and he called me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, what did you think of the film? Uh, it was. Uh, oh, it wasn't. Wait, it wasn't. Three ten to Yuma. I wrote it in fifty three, but it didn't come out until fifty seven. Okay. Yeah, I noticed there were, there were two titles: Moment of Vengeance and The Tall T. I believe before three ten. Moment of Vengeance was a TV thing. That ah. I, well, I, I, that was in the Saturday Evening Post, a short story. Mm-hmm. And then it was on the Slits Playhouse, and it was it was okay. You know, wasn't anything special. But the 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 first one was the. Um, I think the first movie was The Big Bounce. And I, I remember saying to my agent, I said, this is the second worst movie I ever saw. <laughs> and then they remade it just <laughs> so like five years ago. Yeah, I remember. And and I said, well, now I know what the worst movie <laughs> is. They didn't, they, they didn't seem to know what they were doing. They shot it in Hawaii. It took place up in the thumb area of, of Michigan. I know... Then three ten to Yuma, and I know you also uh, Ombre was later was later ma- made into a movie. Yeah, did about sixty seven, I think it was. Did that did that one fare any better for you? Oh yeah, I liked Ombre a lot. Didn't get a very good review in Time Magazine or Newsweek, but uh, but I loved it. I thought it was, it really worked. And I remember in the theater, everybody in the end, uh, Newman is shot at the end of the picture, and then the the, the end credits come on, and, no, and everybody just sat there. Because they didn't believe anybody would shoot Paul Newman, or he would die in a movie, you know. And for that time, Newman was also one of the, uh, you know, the time-honored tradition of the the white man playing Indians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Now I read that I think your your first screenplay credit was uh, Mo- the Moonshine War. Yeah. How uh, was that experience, and, and how did it come about? It was about a guy who made whiskey in in uh, Kentucky in '32. It was against the law, of course, and he kept it. He kept it hidden, and the moon and the uh, revenuers are always looking for his his whiskey. And finally, uh, I don't I don't really remember what the story was, but uh, uh, it was a, it was not a good movie. I just uh, I saw it a couple of times, and that was it. It seems like when you, when you wrote a screenplay, did you approach it any different than say writing one of your novels? No, I I approached it though as though I were adapting the novel. I mean, I, I didn't look for any any other ways to do it, mm-hmm. uh, and seems they seemed to me always to uh, to make sense that, that that they would make good pictures. I remember I did one. God, I forgot what it was for uh, TriStar. The one that I I did for TriStar. I remember I went to I went to a meeting there, and these three guys were sitting at a at a table and looking at me and the guy in the middle said well all you did was turn the the book into into a screenplay i said yes that's what i did and he said well hell anybody can do that you know you you just uh use the the film uh way of writing instead of of, of prose this is where i saw that i mean i I hadn't thought of anything new and different to put in you know Mm -hmm. i didn't think it was necessary and uh, that's when I began to realize I should not be writing movies. <laughs> so 
So finally, in, in 93, I, I quit. Now, I can't remember. Was, was Mr. Majestic a novel first and then a film, or was it the other way around? It was a screenplay first. Okay. And then I remember my agent saying, you're going to have to add a lot of... Uh, a lot of descriptions to make this book length. I said, no, you add a lot of dialogue. <laughs> you add it going down, up and down, not across, you know. Mm -hmm. So that that worked fine. I'm still getting residuals for Mr. Majestic. What was that? Uh, that came out in 73. Mm -hmm. So that's like, you know, 40-something years later. If you don't mind me asking, do are you getting a number of checks for different films, I know, or if not all of them? Well... I'm always surprised when some one that's not very good, uh, <laughs> like uh, the Moonshine War, I'll mm -hmm. get I'll get you know a hundred dollars or one hundred and twenty-three dollars for for that, or uh, one I did for Eastwood, Joe Kidd. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll I'll I'll, fin I'll finally get a residual for that one, which was not a good movie at all. I listened to the director. What did he tell you? Well, he said, you, this guy who is your bad guy, he said, he's, I think he should be a good guy. He should be, well, once you get rid of your bad guy and he's going to turn out to be good, then who's the bad guy? Mm -hmm. You know, then I have to name somebody who worked for him. And it was, it was, it was just too contrived. It, it seems like a, there, for a long, long time that directors didn't know what to do with the screenplay, or as you said, rewrote it themselves. Yeah. Well, yeah, directors do a lot of rewriting. Um, even though you get a credit, I think of, and, and say what you will about the film Stick, it, it did inspire me to start reading your novels. I will oh, give really? it. I will give it that. Yeah. I um, I was a Burt Reynolds fan, and I saw the film, and then I read the the really scathing reviews, and uh, I remember what was it Newsweek? I said uh, said that that Burt Reynolds took an Elmore Leonard novel and turned it into a Mickey Spillane film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had some friends that said, "Look, if you you should really read his novel and check out what happened." And yeah. and I remember reading it, going, "How could you drop the ball on this?" Well, the first thing he said was, "Burt," he mm -hmm. said. I thought I'd l leave my hairpiece off for this one. I said, "Yeah," but what he meant was he would he would wear a much smaller hairpiece <laughs> that looked like he had just gotten a haircut or something. Uh huh. Know? But he it was a it was a it was his kind of a picture. It was uh, he always made the scenes bigger than uh, they were in the book. If there's if there's there's a party. At on a lawn party at someone's house where there were maybe six people there. Well, he 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 brought in a hundred people, and then he has boats passing in front of them with uh, all lit up. You know, he's he he's that old school of let's add more to it. If it's a movie, you know, that was a terrible movie. Did did I hear you? Do you? Uh, I heard. I remember reading in an article once that you had the poster in your office and you uh, you changed the tagline from the film. Oh yeah. The only thing he couldn't stick to was the script. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you still have that? Uh, no, it was in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have? Do I dare I say that you have posters that uh, are no, in certain rooms? No, I don't rooms? have any in the house. Okay, I was saying. Better up. I say it sounds like the bathroom reflects the uh, the product. Yeah, my barber has about a half dozen of them on his walls. Oh really? Yeah. I have to they find look that. Good too. 
and it seemed so finally in the nineties it seemed like you had a good streak with with Get Shorty, Jackie Brown, and Out of Sight. Do you, what do you think happened, or would people finally finally starting to appreciate your work? Well, it took me a long time to be discovered. I was writing for well, I started in the fifties, sixties, seventies. It wasn't until eighty five that I hit the bestseller list, the Times list. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> And, and it was, and it was, a, and it was a New York Times review where I was discovered. The guy says, "Hey, this guy, I, I think he's writing better than uh, anybody I can think of." You know. But uh, I know Get Shorty, I think, was the first of them. Do you remember being approached uh, by Barry Sonnefeld to to have that film made? I heard that uh, uh, Travolta was going to be in it, mm-hmm. and I said to my agent, "I said, God." Don't sell it. Don't sell it. Because he was in Look Who's Talking. I thought, I don't think he's the guy for this one. But it turned out he was. He was He was good in it. Well, and he, he had just come off of Pulp Fiction, and I remember reading, seeing interviews with Quentin Tarantino, who was uh, praising your, your work to, to everybody who would listen. Yeah. In fact, I remember, I think, in Rolling Stone magazine, the review started with, um, the fact that Quentin Tarantino, no, that Elmore Leonard was writing Pulp Fiction long before Quentin Tarantino ever uttered his first fu. <laughs> yeah, he he was a big fan from the beginning. Did now? When did he start getting in touch with you about adapting Rum Punch? Uh, I only talked to him two or three times on the phone, and he told me that uh, that he was going to cast Robert. What was his name? Forster. Yeah. Forster. I said, Robert Forster, he hasn't been in a picture in 20 years. He was in that uh, something in Chicago during the convention. Oh, uh, medium, uh, medium, medium cool. cool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and he says, oh, no, he's good. Well, and he didn't tell me, though, that he was also um, casting Pam Greer. But I, I was whatever he wanted to do was okay with me because I've always liked his stuff. So yeah, you were a fan of Reservoir Dogs and, and Pulp oh, Fiction, yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, it was, it's funny. I, I interviewed Fred Williamson many years ago, and he he worked with Forrester in many in many films. And and his uh, his joke complaint was he he had Forrester play that character for years, and then he works with some other director and gets a gets a nomination for it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I think Tarantino's adaptation was probably the closest of any uh, of any of any picture that was made of mine. Why do you think that is? I don't know. He, <laughs> I, I suppose. Uh, well, once he cast uh, Pam Greer, then he's on his way. He knows who the girl is, and she's the main character. Mm-hmm. So he's. It, it was the story. It was my story all the way. Is that your favorite of the group, as if you have favorites? I think that might be. You get executive producer credits for some of these films, like like Jackie Brown and Be Cool and Kill Shot and Justified. Is there any input, or did they just throw you that title? I think I was just given that, yeah. And I know I, I read on IMDb you have a, a production credit for uh, apparently pre-production for Freaky Deaky. Do you know anything of that? We haven't made it yet, have we? No, it says pre-production. Oh, pre-production. No, I don't know who who's doing it. I I'm not at my computer right now, but I can check later and tell you, but that's just something you some you know, a piece of information I got off the internet. Yeah. <laughs>
of all the films, what what actor captured one of your characters the best? Uh, I I suppose Travolta. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I was surprised because when I when I told my agent that God don't don't sell it to them, <laughs> then I found out that he was in uh, Pulp Fiction was just released then, and I got to see it and I thought, oh my God, I'm glad he's in it because he was perfect. I say, have you have you have there been any films that you've watched recently? I don't know how often you go to the movies. I was just curious. Well, I I, I get them now. Okay. Uh, because uh, you know the, the Oscars, I get them all. D- did your votes win? I thought uh, the King's Speech uh, would win, or the uh, the other one with that Sorkin wrote. I like Sorkin's a lot. Mm-hmm. That was a, I thought that was a great script, and I thought it's between those two. Right, but I was happy with the King's Speech because I liked it a lot. Yeah, me, my, me too. I say, I, I actually, I have a Michigan question because you, you, uh, you set Kill Shot in Algonac, or part of it in Algonac. What, what brought that on? Oh uh, well, I don't know. I suppose just to do it, uh, set it locally. Um, maybe I couldn't think of anywhere else. <laughs> um, I, I only ask because I have friends that live there, and then and I gave I remember giving them a copy of the of the book as a gift, and uh, they they were they were quite tickled. Oh, <laughs> were you? Did you like that film version at all? Oh, it was. I I thought it was it was disappointing to me that that they didn't end it the way the book ends, mm-hmm. where she shoots the guy, you know, leaves it up to her husband because he was kind of. He didn't have much of a part in it at all, and the fact that they were breaking up at one point, uh, I didn't. I thought it was just thrown in for, for plot, because, in the book, they they are in love with each other, mm-hmm. seriously, and they'll get they'll get into fights, into arguments, but it's over in a moment, you know. And I remember when you spoke at Butler that um, was the the ending for the second 310 to Yuma changed at the last minute? I don't know. I think it, because the writers, I did speak to the writers, and they, they were here doing another one. They said, we didn't understand it, but the director wanted, uh, who was the guy, who was the head hero? Russell Crowe? Christian yeah, Bale? Russell okay. Crowe. They wanted him to shoot his own guys and then get on the train. And uh, they just, so they wrote it that way. And uh, it didn't make any sense to me, nor it did to them. But they did it. I don't know what it meant. If you don't mind me asking, how far are you into your new project? I'm on page 272. You just write until until it ends? Yeah, I don't know how it ends yet. Because I want to end it in about 30 or 40 pages. Okay. So I've got to think about how to end it. What's the earliest you've ever written something and you knew how it was going to end? Uh, it was uh, Valdez's Coming. Really? Yeah, because I knew that one. I, I, I thought of it, and, I, and I, I remember calling my agent in Hollywood and saying, I've got, a, uh, I've got one for, and uh, let's see, who was it going to be? I forgot the direct, the uh, producer. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I said, I can write, I can, you get a producer in the office and I'll sell it to him in 10 minutes. And he said, kiddo, write your book. <laughs> but I did it in about uh, seven weeks, seven or eight weeks, which is the fastest I've ever written a book. And did you envision Burt Lancaster? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. You did? Yeah. Because he, he had a couple of interesting westerns at that time as well. There was also Lawman and Alzana's Raid, and I thought they were pretty dark westerns for that time. Yeah, especially Alzana's Raid, yeah. Yeah. Some people have written and some people have rumored that, that the shorty and Get Shorty was inspired by Dustin Hoffman. Do you know if that's true? Well, no, it's no, but he was up for playing the part. At I one see. Time. And I said, I said the guy isn't that short <laughs> because he get shorty was just get this guy who was who was a popular star, you mm. know. That's all, and and a lot of them are short. <laughs> so, and that's why. Well, I'm five five. They seem okay to me. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but get. Um, I don't know. I guess Shorty just sort of came along as a as a title. Okay. And I didn't really, I didn't start with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Because then when they got to Travolta, well, who's who's uh, who's get Shorty? Well, then at the very end, the 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 woman production uh, worker says, "They're all short. You shoot up." <laughs> Back in the days when you you also put them on a box in a kissing scene. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just remember reading a long time ago. I think for a brief period that Hoffman was linked to a film version of La Brava, which which never happened. Yeah, we spent a year with him. Oh, yeah, we, and with him and with directors, Scorsese was the first one, and then Ulu Grossbard, <laughs> and then different. There are a couple of others. And we would, uh, Walter Marish, who was going to produce it, he and I would go to New York and just sit and wait for the meeting to to have a meeting. And then Dustin would come over and we'd talk about it. And then he said, no, I, then he would change the, the storyline. Well, where's my girlfriend? I, don't, I have to have a girlfriend in this, you know, things like that. Did he also order off the menu? Always did that, yeah. <laughs> That's where I got that. I, I would say that that captured a lot of uh, business deals. It seems like. <laughs> it, yeah, and they also don't know their uh, zip code or <laughs> or their phone number if they're <laughs> staying somewhere else. Oh wow! <laughs> I say if you're if you're ever channel surfing and and one of the, one of the films based on your books come on, do you watch it or does it depends on how good or how bad it is? Well. I don't necessarily watch it. No. Okay. Uh-uh. Well, it seems like, uh, especially especially with your body of work, there's always a lot of what could have been, especially with the body of work that you've put out over the years. Well, we're still at it. We're still trying to sell them because there are a bunch of them that we that we like that we think are, would make very good movies, and you know nothing's happening because but but the studios just aren't as active as they used to be. That's the trouble. But. Uh, We've we've got some that I I think uh, swag. We've got a script for swag. Then Sparks, which was a short film. Mm-hmm. Sparks is uh, is is now being written for FX. They're gonna try that one. Cuba Libre. Cuba Libre. I think we've got to sell that one. Cause that's that's a that's a big that's a big picture. The Hot Kid. Tishomingo Blues would be a good movie. Well, there's there's always possibilities. Oh yeah, always. I say, are you familiar with a, a website called The Onion? 
Uh, no. It's well, it's a it's a satirical newspaper, but their entertainment section they do real writing. I mean, the the news the news articles are jokes, but they actually have a serious um, um, entertainment section. And every week they have a, a column called Gateways to Geekery. And what they do is they pick out like a 101 course on how to start with a particular filmmaker or a particular writer or a particular musician. And last week you were the subject. Hmm. And uh, they, they recommended Out of Sight as, the good, as, as a good first step into checking out your body of work. Hmm. Yeah. So good things, are, good things are written about you on the Internet. <laughs> well, I, I see the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was on the internet because I don't have a computer. You don't write on a computer? No, I write in longhand. Yellow pads and then typewriter? It's the, it's an unlined yellow pads that I have made. They're eight and a half by eleven, unlined yellow, and uh, I've been I've been using them ever since. Uh, I was with a band. Silent breed is people. Zardoz has spoken. Zardoz.